This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 27, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. To find parallels for the presidency of Donald Trump, it may be instructive to go back to what historian Anthony Comegna calls the most important election for students of history to remember 1840 and the accidental presidency of John Tyler. Comegna is the assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. We spoke this month. Can you tell me a version of this story that, and I don't know if this violates your core principles as a historian to tell a version of the story that fits both Donald Trump and uh, Mr. Tyler. So I, I sort of have this developing theory of the Whig presidency and uh, this idea that Donald Trump is a Whig president um, with a lowercase w, meaning that uh, he is a figure that was propped up by a party organization. Um, without any particular content to him as an individual. Uh, no history within the parties, no particular ideology, um, very few identifiable true commitments of any kind. And so what happens is the population projects onto him whatever they want to see, and the party bosses project onto them whatever they want to see. And uh, the Whig president goes into office with the ability to be absolutely whatever they want or nothing at all and uh, continue letting people imprint upon them. Um, so you can either have sort of a rogue, uh, almost tyrannical executive, somebody sort of like a Nixon um, who, you know, it has rhetorical commitments, at least, to conservatives and to the right and so on, but then does this huge amount of growing government, expanding their powers. And, um, and then, uh, you know, you could have the president who is hopelessly mired into political conflict because of this uh, aspect of his candidacy. Um, and I think that's the example of John Tyler. Uh, he, he goes in... Uh, so he goes into office um, in a landslide or a, a pretty big victory for the Whigs, uh, though John Tyler, of course, wasn't at the top of the ticket. He was basically put on the ticket because Tippecanoe uh, rhymed with Tyler too, and so uh, it fit very well for the Whigs. Uh, what they wanted to do was really want, run a general. He was put on the, on the ticket because they wanted to make a rhyme? No, that's, I don't think that's literally the case. Uh, he probably wouldn't have made it through convention if that was the only reason. I mean, he was you know, a politician in Virginia of some standing, a planter of a, of a pretty high family. And uh, you know, he was well positioned for the, for the role. But the Whigs were plainly looking to run General Harrison. They weren't really running the VP. They were running the, the presidential ticket. And it was a general at the top who had a you know, hugely uh, popular following behind him. And uh, he was able to sweep it basically by taking the same uh, – the Whigs took the same strategy that the Democrats had used under Jackson and then under Van Buren of sort of um, uh, courting a groundswell from the population behind purely the popularity of the candidate, right? It was about personalities and um, the, the personal figure that you're placing before the people as their great tribune. Um, and Jackson just absolutely smashed that contest. He ran away with it. Um, Van Buren wasn't quite that uh, magnificent a personality, but he carried on the, the party's um, successful methods of, of electioneering. 
And then the Whigs uh, really learned, as one commentator said, learned how to conquer us. Uh, they beat the Democrats at their own game of popular politicking, running a general on no particular platform uh, other than whatever the Whigs campaigning for him felt like saying he stood for, right? So they would often, they did this again in 1848, they would run candidates in one section and say they're pro-slavery and then run them in the other section and say they're anti-slavery. One section they're in favor of free trade and the other section they're in favor of protective tariffs and so on. And uh, the candidate went into office with little or no actual commitments that anybody could tie them down to. Now, Tyler was called his accidency because, of course, Harrison died about a month into office and nobody really expected Tyler to uh, assume the presidency, certainly not so quickly. It was the first time that had happened. Um, and Tyler goes into office, a Whig nominally. Uh, he had his issues with the Jacksonian Democrats. Mainly, he thought Jackson was a sort of Caesar and was claiming too much power for himself as president. So Tyler gets into office and decides he's going to really um, be a different sort of president in that he's going to turn totally against his party and veto all their pet legislation. So the Whigs go in in 1840 with a clean sweep of the government. They own the White House and they own both houses of Congress. They have the balance of the Supreme Court, and uh, they get to totally, totally make policy. Um, and what Tyler does is veto it all. He, every major bill, the the recharter of the new Bank of the United States. They even they even dressed that up again and called it something else, not a, not a bank, but I don't know, a fiscal distributor or something like that. And he vetoed that bill too. He vetoed the Rivers and Harbors bill. He vetoed the. Uh, a protective tariff bill that they wanted to put in. Every plank of the American system he got rid of. So they kicked him out of, his, out of their party. And he was in office without a political party for most of his term. Now, Tyler thought, well, this is a good opportunity, being as I'm, I'm not beholden to either one of these parties, which most of Americans think are pretty corrupt and corrupting influences anyways. Here's a good opportunity for me to get rid of them too. Let's veto the political parties, uh, and we'll I'll run a third party campaign in 1844 on the basis of Tylerism. So I'm not going to be a Democrat or a Whig. I'm going to be an independent Tylerite. And Tylerism didn't have too many legs. Uh, he wasn't a very popular person. You know, not a very magnanimous figure. Um, and he stepped on so many toes of, of each party throughout his presidency that by the time it got to 1844, nobody really wanted Tyler. And I think this connects to the Trump administration in many, many different ways. And obviously, it's not the same situation. It's going to be every historical situation is going to be uniquely different. Uh, but Trump comes into office with no particular commitments, with very few real ideologies that he holds to. Um, no long-term attachment to either party. I mean, was he a Democrat before he was a Republican a few years ago? I don't, I don't really know. It seems like it, maybe. Um, but he's certainly not firmly attached to either party. Uh, and the population definitely projects onto him whatever they feel like seeing. He's a, he's a general in the modern sense. Uh, and interestingly enough, perhaps dangerously enough to those of us who are libertarians, Trump has a dedicated following of libertarians, too. Uh, people who are especially concerned about tax rates and regulation, domestic policy, 
Um, they're willing to overlook his immigration agenda uh, and his being anti-free trade. In some cases, libertarians support, or people who call themselves libertarians support the uh, immigration restrictions. Yeah, yeah, it's not. You're right. That's a good point to make. That it's not just a tacit sort of acceptance, right? That some policies we don't like will be implemented. It's actually uh, there. There are a lot of libertarians who positively endorse it uh, as one of these moments where, oh, sure, we're all subject to the government nationalizing the border, and therefore there is no private property keeping people on one side. And not on the other and you know why should the people who live on the border or who live in this society be subjected to a government that doesn't protect private property rights and just allows people to come across the border okay <laughs> I, I can understand that in some regard uh, but instead of you know uh, disallowing the government to exercise that kind of power. They positively endorse it. Why? I have a suspicion that a lot of these libertarians are simply very deeply traditionalist people. They want America to stay a sort of white, English-speaking Anglo zone um, and think that government force is acceptable in those cases, uh, or at least in the imperfect world we live in. Right. So when the government does nationalize the border, like I said, then they say, okay, well, why should we then force all Americans to become a multiracial, multilinguistic society when they might not want to? It's the government that's mucking up the border. Well, it, fine. In, this, some, in some sense, it's given the system we have now, this is the correct policy and we can fight another day for other liberty-friendly policies. Yeah, so I, I, you know, the, the the clear comparison to the the Tyler days here is when the libertarian elements of the day were ecstatic that he would veto a new national bank bill. They fully expected a Whig administration would mean a new national bank, and he and he won't have any part of it. He vetoes it, uh, and the rest of the Whig domestic agenda. And so there's this core of loco foco libertarians of the day who love Tyler and are behind him all the way into 1844 because of that. And then by the end of his administration, something else unexpected happens. Uh, James K. Polk gets the nomination to be the next Democratic Party presidential candidate, and he's a committed expansionist. So is John Tyler. So Tyler decides, you know what, I'm going to put my mark on history anyways. Uh, there might not be room for Tylerism in this country, but I'm going to put my mark on America anyways. And he annexes Texas. So before Tyler leaves office, Texas is coming into the Union as the next state, and along with it, the almost certainty of war with Mexico. So Tyler, as part of this move to put, cobble together a third-party independent movement that eschews both parties, both major parties, and builds its strength on the independence of a single great man uh, as tribune of the people uh, in the face of all these consolidated interests. Um, <clears throat> in that pursuit of making a mark on history and in uh, carving space for this new sort of movement, he ended up doing the thing that could probably harm this system the very worst uh, by introducing new territory into a political climate that simply could not solve such important questions. Uh, so, you know, maybe what we'll see with Donald Trump is some sort of crisis moment where his belligerency, his uh, insistence on being sort of his own independent tough guy that isn't influenced by anybody 
you know, and yet he seems to be constantly influenced by everybody. Uh, maybe he will uh, succeed in destroying the legitimacy of both parties, um, but chances are he'll destroy any kind of peaceful interaction we've been able to make with our politics while he does that, right? Um, any kind of business as usual, which is conducive to peace and, and <laughs> ongoing affairs. Uh, might crumble apart uh, because nobody knows how this political system is supposed to work anymore. Is it just at the whim of this guy who's constantly on Twitter? Or is there some kind of structure, some kind of underlying logic to how this system works? The second party system, party politics in America, the idea is to mediate conflict in a nonviolent way. Um, and those of us who are anti-politics might say, well, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, that's not going to work. But nonetheless, that's, what it, that's the idea here. So if we have somebody who is so sort of strident in their desire, at least expressed desire, to uh, change the system and drain the swamp and uh, not care a bit uh, who challenges him in that, well, um, they'll probably have difficulty actually getting much change accomplished in this country, which really does work to a large degree on consensus uh, as well as conflict. Is it appropriate in historical context to view the Trump presidency as a bit of a one-off? Yeah. Uh, Harrison was elected uh, in large part by based on his personality and, and profile and was regarded highly for something. <laughs> but uh, with Donald Trump, he's a famous guy who was elected despite you know huge huge fundraising advantage of his opponent and being a particularly polarizing figure he drew a lot of disaffected voters both republicans and democrats out in rural areas to uh, support him so is there any chance that after this is over that we go back to normal whatever normal <laughs> is uh, there are a couple things to say about that um First, I, I like to tell students back when I was teaching that the most important presidential election, if you're going to remember one presidential election year, remember 1840. That's the most important one uh, because that's the year when both parties became the same and they accepted the idea that uh, the ruling class in America was going to be the political parties as determined by the voting populace. And <clears throat> That kind of sounds banal and <laughs> perfectly acceptable today, uh, but that's a big deal. The idea that the actual ruling class in this country is not really the democratic majority. It's the political class that can corral the most votes, right? They're the ones who actually rule. And it doesn't so much matter what the people with their votes say because they can't really say anything. They can just vote one guy or the other. All the content of that vote is provided by the candidate or by the party, as the case may be. So it doesn't really matter who wins one election to the other, so long as the same two-party duopoly system is ruling by fiat of those votes. Right? It's, it's uh, uh, input into a system that doesn't change the system whatsoever, it just keeps it going. Um, so in a sense, is Trump's presidency a one-off? doesn't really matter because there's going to be another guy after him exactly like him. Until America elects Ron Paul or something, uh, some, something like that that will never happen, then it's going to be more or less meet the new boss same as the old boss. 
And you say 1840 because it represented the dissolution uh, or the moment where the dissolution of a party really became inevitable? Yeah, it used to be that uh, in the very earliest days of party politics in America, the early early 19th century, um, before they were really machine-like organizations, uh, it used to be that the Democrats, people who aligned themselves with Jefferson and then Jackson, thought that there were no natural aristocrats and that everybody was basically as good as everybody else, and so we should all have a say in how we govern. And then the other side said, you know what, come on, that's nonsense. Let's be a little more realistic. Some people are natural aristocrats, and they should be given the you know, power and, and privilege and advantage to exercise their talents. Uh, and I think there's, there's merit to both of those views. And so the real point is, let's stop trying to govern each other, right? <laughs> and maybe we can start governing ourselves. Is, is there a through line from that natural aristocrat to... Uh, enlightened policy elite that exists in, in Washington today where where one person can say to another, well, we all know that and have this sort of expert consensus on things like, well, trade, for example. I think there's an expert consensus that the, a popular election can effectively, in some ways, depending on the messenger, reject. Yeah. And uh, this... The idea that democracy is somehow infallible and uh, as long as something is touched by democracy, it's made legitimate, uh, really took place in the Jacksonian period. This one took, became rooted because uh, the franchise was so radically expanded um, decade after decade to more and more people so that by the 1870s, you have women voting and African-Americans voting all over the country. Um, you know, then in the progressive era, these this generation or two of highly educated bureaucratic experts who you know took these new jobs and positions in state that were there after the Civil War and when the government was getting so much more massive and needing statistics and needing you know sociological information about people and so on they need lots of experts to handle all this information and process it. Uh, well, the thinking by these same progressives who then started writing political theory, um, they said, well, look, all, all of this is stuff is sanctioned by democracy. People are voting. They're taking part in the system. It's not as though you know, power is being imposed upon them from above without their consent at all. They accepted the premises of democracy and moved forward. And you know, uh, in the modern world, that, that means that uh, democratic majorities have every right to uh, to cast away the burdens of government onto a class of uh, bureaucrats who are experts at whatever they're doing. Um, again, I think we're more. The more time goes on, it seems like we cast more duties aside to those bureaucrats and then project onto the president how we want all those people to fix what they're doing. You know, we give, we project the authority onto the whole system with our votes, and then uh, we act as though the president we're voting for is going to make everybody follow the same implementation or the same will. And it's interesting that the people who uh, are most likely to be endorsers of uh, democracy as the solution for so many uh, societal ills are the people who. Uh, ultimately 
reject the outcome of the election in mm. 2016 mm-hmm. as as insufficiently democratic. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, that's a whole that's a whole interesting mess too. To <laughs> whether who thinks Trump is legitimate and who doesn't think he's legitimate, and what does that imply about you? There have been some amazing somersaults going on on both sides of the aisle trying to explain Trump. I think the you know the the clearest explanation though is really that uh, this is sort of a loose cannon guy who's not very moored into the system of how things usually work. Um, and he'll muddle along probably as best he can. But the uh, the only agenda that he's going to end up fulfilling is Trumpism. And I think that's part of what people, especially the, the libertarians who might have gone in and actually voted for the guy, that's the, the thing that they should really remember, that there's at the end of the day, there's not going to be any kind of policy coming out of that White House except Trumpism. And you know, I think the question then should be, well, do you consider yourself part of Trumpism? Uh, or is that something you'd like to see fade away, sort of like Tylerism? Maybe we can keep the good things, keep all the vetoes and get rid of all the bad stuff, but I very seriously doubt it. Anthony Comagna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.